living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. If you're of a certain age in this congregation, you you know that song by heart. Of course, the desire for utopia is much older than John Lennon's lyric. But as you can tell, if you're of a certain age, it's hard to think of a better expression of that desire. In the aftermath of, of what we've seen unfold in Boston this week, who doesn't identify with those lyrics? Who, who doesn't long for a better world? A, a, a world that is genuinely at peace. You know, lots of people over the centuries have sought utopia and they have worked hard for it. In many ways, even though you may disagree with the, the political philosophy behind it, that this is what was behind Karl Marx and Vladimir Lenin. They genuinely believed that oppression of the worker was the problem and that if you could just get rid of that oppression, if you could just get rid of the private ownership of the means of production, if you would just allow workers to share equally in the fruit of their labor, well, then you would achieve what they called a a worker's paradise, a a, a real utopia. The problem with utopian schemes isn't their goals. I mean, I mean when, you, when you even look at Marxism, the problem in one sense with Marxism isn't the goal. The problem is what you have to do in a fallen world in order to achieve that goal. As a, as a, as a historian, I can assure you that some of the greatest inhumanities to man in all of history have been perpetrated by people trying to usher in utopia. As Christians, uh, we, we have an explanation for this. It's, it's what we would call an over-realized eschatology. The, the, the mistaken idea that as fallen human beings in a fallen world, we can achieve heaven on earth. We can usher in utopia. But the fact that we can't usher in utopia really raises another even more difficult question, doesn't it? It raises the question of why God doesn't. Okay, we know we can't, but why doesn't he? I mean, if anybody can usher in utopia, surely he can do it, right? He's he's God. Liberation theology, which really picks up where Marx left off, teaches that the message of Christianity, what Christianity is all about, is a message of bringing economic and social justice, a a kind of heaven on earth. And yet all winter we've been looking at the original liberation theology, the liberation theology of the book of Exodus. And and what we see, actually, when we look at that original liberation theology is, is that having delivered his people from slavery, God leads his people not into paradise, not, not into utopia, not into the promised land, not into heaven on earth. No, he leads his people quite deliberately into the wilderness. 
what if the point of the liberation that God brings is not to make everything better now? What if the point of God's liberation is not to make everything better now? Would we still be interested in the liberation he has to offer? Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 15. Exodus chapter 15, uh, beginning with verse 22. Exodus chapter 15, verse 22. If you're using one of the Bibles we provided, that's found on page 111. Now, we're going to be going all the way through to the end of chapter 18, and I'm not going to read it all. Uh, But I I want to read a, a few verses here just to get started. So starting in verse 22, read with me. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That's why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what are we to drink? Now, now skip down to chapter 16, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Now skip over to the beginning of, of chapter 17. 17, chapter 1. I mean, chapter 17, verse 1. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Now flip over to chapter 19, verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt... On the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. As you can see from the verses that I've just read, this entire section, from, from the moment after they, they, they go through the Red Sea on dry ground until the moment they arrive at the foot of, of Mount Sinai, it, it, it's structured by their, their wanderings through the desert. If, we, if I understand the, the time markers correctly, two months, two months of trekking from one desert wilderness to another desert wilderness to yet another desert wilderness before they ever even get to Sinai. They're not lost. They're not taking a detour around some, some roadblock. No, it's God who's leading. We we saw that last week. The pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire in front, leading them on their way. No, God is deliberately, for these two months, leading them deeper and deeper into the wasteland of Sinai. Now, I I don't know what you think of when you think of desert. My my wife and I had the opportunity to to be on the Sinai Peninsula about, well, in 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 the late 90s. It's like lunar. I, I mean, it's something that you would imagine maybe, maybe on, on Mars. It's, it's, it's not. The, the desert 
Like, I don't know, like some of you like to go camping here in, in eastern Oregon. It, it is wasteland. And that's where God led them. On purpose. And the question that we have to ask this morning is why? Why does God lead his people into the wilderness before he brings them to the promised land? I want to offer three reasons this morning as we walk through this passage. Three reasons. First reason, God leads us into the wilderness to teach us to live by faith. God leads us into the wilderness to teach us to live by faith. That is really the the, the main point of the long section from verse 22 of chapter 15 all the way through to verse 7 of chapter 17. That, That whole single section is making this point. As chapter 16 opens, as we saw, it's, it's actually been a month since they, they left Egypt on Passover night. One month has gone by. For, for, and as, as we also saw then in chapter 19, a, another month is going to pass before they finally reach their, their destination. And, and all that time, they're, they're wandering around in the wilderness. And if we had time to read this, this whole passage and all of its detail, what you'd see is wandering in the wilderness is no picnic. There's, there's no water in the wilderness. That's why it's a wilderness. There's no water there. there. There's no, there's no food in the wilderness. It's hot in the wilderness. There are bandits that live in the wilderness. And, and so not surprisingly, in, in these two months of travel, the people start to grumble. Just to give you some examples, we've read some of them already. Chapter 15, verse 24, what are we to drink? It's been three days, no water. Moses, what are we to drink? Or or skip down to chapter 16, verse 3. The Israelites said to, to Moses and Aaron, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. What are we supposed to eat out here? Then then skip to chapter 17, verse 2. We're we're in a new desert, but the same old problem. Uh, Chapter 17, verse 2. So they quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Uh, Skip to verse 3. The people were thirsty for water there. And they grumbled against Moses. They said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt? To make us and our children and livestock die of thirst. It's no picnic out there in the wilderness. Now what I find striking is I read this text again and again and again this week. Not once does, does Moses, in, in writing this narrative, not once does he condemn the people for misunderstanding their problem. Not, not once are they accused of being greedy. Not, not once are, are, are they accused of being discontent. It's, you see, it's not that they're complaining that the food and the water that they have are not up to standards. They're going to do that later. On the other side of Mount Sinai, there's going to be a lot of grumbling that is really grumbling of discontent. What God has given us isn't good enough. But that's not what's going on here. 
the text is really clear. It's really quite honest. It's been three days and they've had no water. They are genuinely thirsty. A month in, they're running out of food. They are genuinely hungry. Now, I wonder if we can relate. Maybe not to being thirsty and hungry. But can we relate to life in the wilderness? Can, can we relate to, to, to this, this idea that, that wandering around in this world actually oftentimes is no picnic? Real loneliness. Real heartache. Real sadness. Devastating illness. Marriages and families that are hurting. Real fear. See, I I think we can relate to them. I think we can relate deeply. Though maybe we've never gone hungry a day in our lives. We know how hard it is to wander through the wilderness of this life. And what Moses says to them repeatedly is this. You're not grumbling against me and Aaron. You're grumbling against the Lord. Why do you put the Lord to the test? That's what he says there in chapter 17, verse 2. Why why do you quarrel with me? Not quarreling with me. Quarreling with the Lord. Why do you put the Lord to the test? Now, what is he saying to the people there? Really, what's going on here is he's essentially saying to, to the Israelites, you know, the problem here is not that you're not satisfied with what God's provided. Because actually, at that moment, God hasn't provided anything yet. Now, the problem is that you're not trusting that God is going to provide in the first place. You're not trusting that God is going to provide in the first place. And and friends, that is the reason God led his people into the desert. He led them into a place where they would have nothing. He led them into the howling wilderness to teach them to trust him. To trust him to provide. To to trust him to provide rather than being the kind of people that that provide for themselves. To, To begin to teach them, now that he's saved them, now that he's delivered them from Egypt, to teach them to live by faith. Look in chapter 16, verse 4. This is, this is really where it's summarized for us. They're, they're grumbling about the lack of food. We're, we're one month in and they're convinced that they're going to starve to death out there in, in the wilderness because they're running out. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, in the evening, you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning, you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord When he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us. 
but against the Lord. And then down to verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight, you will eat meat. And in the morning, you will be filled with bread. And then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. Friends, here's the first reason God leads us into the wilderness. God wants us to trust him. God God wants us to know exactly what kind of God he is. A God that we can actually stake everything on. Uh, This this is in part why you you get these interesting Sabbath regulations with the collection of manna. They're they're only to go out and collect what they need for that day. They're they're not allowed to go out and collect extra for the next day. If they do, it's just going to get stinky and filled with maggots. God wants to teach them to trust him every day for what they need. But on the sixth day, they're actually supposed to go out and get twice as much. And and they're to trust that that this day, only on the night of the sixth day, will the extra leftovers not get stinky. That, that they'll actually be able to kept, they'll, they'll be able to be kept and will be usable for the next day. Because, because God's going to teach them again, not only can you trust me to provide for you every day, but you can even trust me on the Sabbath day that, that you don't even have to go out and work at all. You're not going to have to go gather anything. But I will give you enough for for two days. Built into their daily routine, built into their weekly rhythm. He wants his people to know what kind of God he is. That he's the Lord. The, The Lord who can be relied upon. The Lord who cares for us. This is what it means to be the Lord. The God who enters into a relationship with his people. The God who who gives all that he has stakes all that he is to love his people and to provide for them. And friends, where do we learn that lesson? The the fact is we don't learn that lesson about the character of God, about the nature of God in the midst of plenty and good times. We don't. When we're in the midst of plenty and good times, we're fairly convinced that Well, this is just the way it's supposed to be. This is the way it's always been. I've provided this for myself. Isn't life great? We don't learn this lesson sitting around pots of meat in Egypt. That's that's what they wanted. They wanted to go back to pots of meat in Egypt. But remember, they they were slaves in Egypt. God wants them to learn to trust him. And he wants the same for us. And we learn it in the wilderness. That's where we learn it. And it's why God brings his people there. And from the beginning, this has always been God's pattern. Before the glory of heaven comes the wilderness of suffering. Always, always in the life of God's people. Before the glory of heaven comes the wilderness of suffering. From David's years of hiding in the wilderness before he is actually set on the throne of Israel to Jesus' own temptation in the wilderness before he is exalted as the son of God. From Israel's wandering in the wilderness to our own sojourn through the wilderness of this fallen world, God would teach his people to trust him. And he would teach us to trust him to meet Our very deepest needs. Not just the need for hunger. 
uh, the, the, the need for food, not just the, the need for, for water, not, not just the, the need for clothing. We, we heard Jesus speak to that in the, in the passage that was read earlier. Trust God for all of that. God's going to take care of all of that. No, set your heart on the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Trust him for that most important thing. Trust him to give us a relationship with him. Trust him to give us himself. And friends, that's really what this narrative is all about. When we get to the New Testament, Jesus points back to chapter 16 of Exodus. And in John 6, he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. In John chapter 4, he points back to this very passage, this very section of Exodus. And he says to the woman at the well, whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up into eternal life. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul, the Apostle Paul, declares about this very passage. They all drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock, he says, was Christ. That rock was Christ. Friends, God's perfect provision for us in the midst of the trials of this life doesn't mean we never go hungry. It doesn't mean we never get thirsty. It doesn't mean that, that our kids will always turn out okay or that, that we're never unemployed. It doesn't mean that our marriages are always perfect. It certainly doesn't mean that our churches are. What it means is that having given us Christ, we can trust him. We can trust him in the midst of whatever trials or whatever hardships or, or, or whatever sufferings have come our way because they are part of the plan. It, it's like God has enrolled us in his own school, the school of faith. And it, it's, a, it's a wilderness training camp. You know, people pay big money to go do wilderness training camps in eastern Oregon. Well, as Christians, we get it for free. And the curriculum has been designed specifically by God. And it's not a one-size-fits-all curriculum. No, he's, he's fitted your curriculum especially for you. So do not ask why you suffer what you do and others don't seem to suffer the way you do. It's because in God's good wisdom, he knows that what he's brought into your life is exactly what you need to grow in trust in him. And somebody else doesn't need your particular sufferings or your particular trials. God has shaped their trials just for them. As the Lord, not as a big meanie upstairs who doesn't care about his people, but as the Lord, as the one who's entered into relationship with us in love and wants us to know him. And so has designed this school of faith, especially for us. So, so what do we do as, as students enrolled in this school of faith? Well, too often we grumble, right? We're just like the Israelites. How do you know if you're grumbling? Well, are you looking back at Egypt, right? Are, are, are you looking over at somebody else's life and saying, boy, I wish I had their life. If I had their life, I'd be happy. Are you questioning God's providence? Is your life filled with, with whys? Why God? Why me? Why this? Why now? In the midst of those whys, are you doubting God's goodness? That he's your father? 
that he loves you? Do you find yourself thinking, you know, life would be great if I just had God plus. You know, I, I love it that I have God. I, I love it that I've been brought into a relationship with Jesus, uh, with God through Jesus. Now, if I could just also have, fill in the blank, I'd be happy. Friends, that's grumbling. That's grumbling. What do we do? What do we do in this hard school of faith? Well, we bring God our requests and our petitions. We, we, we don't we don't yell at our parents. We don't yell at our elders. We don't yell at our friends. Why is my life this way? No, we go to God and we say to God, God, I'm thirsty. God, I'm hungry. We, we, we bring those petitions to him. We, do, we don't pretend that that life in the wilderness is easy. We don't pretend that there are no problems. No, we bring them to him. But then we trust him. We trust him to sustain us in the midst of the wilderness. We, we understand that as long as we have him, we have all we need. So, so maybe, maybe you're here this, this morning and you're, you're really struggling with the loneliness of not being married and you want to be married. Maybe for the first time or, or, or maybe you've, you've been widowed and, and you'd like to be married again because the loneliness of being a widow or a widower is overwhelming. Friend, bring that to him. But bringing, bring that to him with the faith that should he decide to leave you in your singleness, he is with you. He has provided himself. That is sufficient. Should he choose not to give you the rest? Maybe you're struggling with some sort of chronic illness. Pain every day in your life. Limitation every day in your life. And don't pretend that it's not hard. Bring it to him. Bring your petition for healing, for, for relief. But bring it to him and trust that he is sufficient. Should he leave you there in that pain and in that limitation, he is sufficient. He's given you himself. Now, if, if, if you're not a Christian, consider your own life. Consider the troubles and the trials that you face. Is it possible that the troubles in your life are actually God's kindness to you? Maybe you're tempted to feel bitter towards God because of the troubles in your life. If there were really a God, I wouldn't have these troubles. Well, no, no, friend. Maybe because there is a God, you have those troubles. And he's meaning them to prod you, to to poke you, to, to compel you to turn to him. In the desert, God brought the people to a place with no water there in verse in chapter 17. And then he pointed out a rock and he said to Moses, Moses, go over and strike that rock. And when you strike it, water will flow out of that rock for the people. I already mentioned that in first Corinthians chapter 10, Paul tells us that rock was Christ. I don't quite understand what that means. I don't quite know what that looks like. 
All I know is he, he refers to it as a spiritual rock. And he says that that rock was Christ. Friends, Jesus Christ on the cross was struck by his father. He wasn't just struck by the Romans. He wasn't just struck by the Jews. He was struck by his father. The judgment of God on the innocent Jesus Christ as he took on himself the punishment that we deserve. Bearing it freely. And friends, as a result of that, from Christ flows water. Spiritual water, living water, that as any of us turn away from our sins, repent of our sins, and turn instead to Christ and drink of that water, we will find new life, forgiveness of our sins, reconciliation with God, life in the wilderness. Oh, so some of the trials are going to continue. Becoming a Christian doesn't mean all the trials go away. In fact, sometimes I think becoming a Christian means we're actually signing up for more. But in the midst, there is life. Because God gives, him, gives us himself. He gives us the Holy Spirit who begins to quench the very deepest thirst of our souls. Friend, if that describes you, I, I would encourage you, turn to Christ today. I'd love to talk to you about that. I'll be at the door afterwards. I'd be happy to talk to you about what it would look like to begin to find the deepest thirsts of your soul quenched in Jesus Christ. Well, God doesn't just lead us in the desert to teach us to trust him. There's a second reason in this passage that we see uh, God leading us into the desert. And that, that second reason is to teach us that the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Look in chapter 17, verse 8. The Amalekites came and attacked the Israelites at Rephidim. Moses said to Joshua, choose some of our men and go out to fight the Amalekites. Tomorrow I will stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hands. So Joshua fought the Amalekites as Moses had ordered. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. As long as Moses held up his hands, the Israelites were winning. But whenever he lowered his hands, the Amalekites were winning. When Moses' hands grew tired, they took a stone and put it under him and he sat on it. Aaron and Hur held his hands up. One on one side, one on the other, so that his hands remained steady till sunset. So Joshua overcame the Amalekite army with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this on a scroll as something to be remembered and make sure that Joshua hears it, because I will completely blot out the memory of, of Amalek from under heaven. Moses built an altar and called it, the Lord is my banner. He said, for hands were lifted up to the throne of the Lord. The Lord will be at war against the Amalekites from generation to generation. Genesis tells us that the Amalekites were descended from Esau. They were a nomadic people living throughout this region, and, and the Sinai Peninsula was one of their strongholds. Now, we don't know why they attacked Israel here. We're not given any reason. We, what we see, however, is that it's unprovoked. And because of that, in verse 14, God declares that Israel is to be at perpetual war with the Amalekites from generation to generation until the nation of Amalek has been utterly wiped out. Now, the end of that story actually happens in first Samuel chapter 30. Which we which we actually looked at last last fall. But what's central to this narrative where we really first meet the Amalekites is the reason Joshua, who we're also first meeting, the reason that he wins the battle. You know, Moses stands on this hilltop over overlooking the battle. He's got Aaron and 
her there with him. He's got the staff of God in his hands. And so long as his arms are raised, Joshua is winning. But whenever the hands, you know, begin to creep down, the Amalekites start to win. So in the end, Aaron and her actually hold Moses' hands up with the staff of God in his hands. And they hold his hands up there all day until sunset, finally the end of the day, when Joshua proves victorious. Now, there are lots of ideas about what's going going on with Moses' hands raised up like that. Uh, Some people have suggested that, that standing there like that, Moses is a visual reminder of the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, a reminder that that God is fighting for them. Uh, Others have pointed to the fact that there's a staff in his hand. It's not just any staff. This is the staff of God. This is the staff that Moses used to strike the Nile, to strike Egypt, through which the plagues against Egypt were were actually put in force. Others have just suggested it's it's simply a posture of prayer. Because Moses refers to that uh, in in his comments there in verse uh, 15 and 16. Whatever the the specific reason, and we've got to just be honest, the text doesn't tell us. The text doesn't really fully explain to us what's going on with his hands held up. Whatever the specific reason, though, I think the point always ends up being the same. Though Joshua is down there on the plane fighting, and he is really fighting. He is fighting for his life. Nevertheless, it is the Lord who wins the battle. It is the Lord who fights against the Amalekites and wins the battle. A Christian, is this not a picture of the Christian life? Our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's not against ethnicities. It's not against nations. It's definitely not against the Amalekites, whoever they might be. Our battle is against sin. Our battle is against the old man, against the flesh and the devil. And it is a battle that goes on from generation to generation. It is a battle that goes on from the dawn of my life to the very sunset of my life. There is not a day in my life in which this battle is not being fought. I, I, I never get to stop fighting against sin. I, I, I never get to, to call a truce. I, I never get to, to, to make an alliance with sin. I have been called to fight a perpetual battle against sin. And yet, for all of my battling, at the end of the day, it is the Lord who must win this battle. And it is the Lord who does win this battle through his anointed. I don't think it is any accident that, as we noted in the fall, the end of the story of the Amalekites, the final and utter defeat of the, of the Amalekites is, is done not, not, not by Joshua, not by any of the, the, the later judges. No, the one who finally wins that, that ultimate battle against Amalek is David. The Lord's anointed, the true king of Israel, who finally puts an end to the warfare with the Amalekites. In Israel's history, it was David, but friends, in ours, it is David's greater son, isn't it? It is Jesus Christ, the Lord's anointed, who wins the battle against sin and Satan and death and the, and the flesh, remaining sin. Now, now, that doesn't mean I get to stop fighting. Right? I, I, I got to keep fighting. I'm called by scripture as Christians. We are called by scripture to throw our whole lives into this fight. And yet it is the Lord Jesus who wins it. So, so what are the weapons that the, that the Lord gives us to use? Clearly, if we fight in our own strength, we'll lose. 
just as Joshua began to lose when unaided by the prayers of Moses, we must fight not with the weapons of this world, not with the weapons of the flesh. We must fight in the power of the spirit. That's how the battle against sin is carried on. It's carried on through through prayer. It's carried on through immersing ourselves in God's word, which scripture tells us is the sword of the spirit. So that God's word continually reshapes our thinking, reshapes our desires in prayer as we increasingly align our desires with the Lord's and against ourselves. This battle is carried on in the body of Christ. This is, you know, it's not Joshua down there fighting by himself. He's got a whole army with them. And Moses is up there on, on, on the hilltop and he, he actually needs Aaron's help and hers help. And we're no different. We need the local church. If we are going to carry on in this battle against sin, we need people who are holding our arms up, right? We need people who are in the fight with us, who understand what it means to be wounded in the fight and how to gently bind up those wounds. People, friends in the local church who understand what it means to grow weary of the fight and to want to give up and who are able to come along and encourage us to persevere. Friends who are able to come alongside us in the local church because they understand what it means to become a coward in the fight and just want to run the other way. And they go after us. And they bring us back to the battle. Friends, these these are the means of grace that the Lord God has given us in this battle. But most of all, what he has given us is the gospel. We we need to put on the helmet of salvation, as Paul describes it, the end of Ephesians. We need to put on the breastplate of righteousness. It is not law that defeats sin. It is the gospel that defeats sin. It is the grace of God forgiving us that defeats sin. So, friends, the Lord leads us into the wilderness. And he leaves us with this battle against indwelling sin so that again and again and again, we would have to turn back to the gospel again and again. We would have to turn back and depend upon the Lord to win this battle for us. We never graduate from the gospel. We never get past it. We never get over it. There's not a day in this life that we don't need it. Not willpower, not law. The grace of God in the gospel allows us to stay in the fight. And it reminds us that it's the Lord who wins this battle. And friends, the day will come when he will utterly defeat sin and Satan and death. We talk about this a lot here. It's it's not in this life. The, 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 The victory is effectively won on the cross. Nevertheless, the day will come when he calls us home or he returns and sin will be no more. On that day, there will not be an Amalekite left, not one standing, not one inside, but we will be set free from that battle. It's a short battle. It's a short battle. Do not grow weary. Stay in the fight. Stay in the Lord. God leads us into the wilderness that we would learn to trust him that we would learn that the battle is the Lord's third and finally he leads us in the wilderness in order to be a blessing to the nations. He leads us into the wilderness so that we would be a blessing to the nations. This is really what chapter 18 is all about. If you've been in churches, I I don't have time to read the whole passage, but 
Many of you will be familiar with it. It's a family reunion between Moses and Jethro. And Jethro notices that, that Moses is just weighed down with the weight of leading these people. And at the end of the chapter, Jethro gives Moses some really good advice about how to organize the people, about how to distribute leadership and share leadership. And if you've been around churches for any length of time, you, I'm sure, will have heard a talk or a sermon on leadership from Exodus chapter 18, on the importance of delegating leadership, on the importance of shared leadership. And there's no question that all of those lessons are in this chapter. But there's also no question that that's not the main point of chapter 18. That's not the point. The the point of chapter 18 is that a pagan priest of Midian has become a worshiper of the true God. And the reason he's become a worshiper of the true God is because Moses met him in the wilderness and told him about what God had done for him and and for Israel. I mean, what, what began as this family reunion becomes really a conversion narrative. Look in verse 10. Or verse, verse 9 of chapter 18. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians and of Pharaoh and who rescued the people from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and offered and, and other sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. Jethro confesses that the Lord is the Lord. That, that no other gods compared to him. That, 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 that the Lord is the one true God. Jethro backs up that, that verbal claim by, by offering a sacrifice to the Lord. And Israel shows that they think this is genuine by entering into a meal of fellowship with him. It's actually, it, it's, it's, it's a peace treaty. It's, it's entering into an alliance, a, a fellowship between, between Israel and, and the clan of Jethro, this, this Midianite clan, accepting him into the fellowship of the Lord. It happens in the very presence of God. Now, coming on the heels of the battle with the Amalekites, and, and right before they, they meet with God at Sinai, I think this entire scene, this entire chapter is meant to remind us of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. There God said, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all people on earth will be blessed through you. The, the contrast is stark. Amalek cursed Israel and so was cursed forever. But Jethro, the Midianite, blesses Israel and so is blessed. Coming to a knowledge of the Lord as the God who's above all gods, coming into fellowship with God's people. Friends, there's no one in this room. There is no one in this room who is more eager than I am to get to heaven. There is no one in this room today who is more eager than I am to be done with the wilderness. The wilderness has been particularly tough for the Lawrence family lately. And I'm ready. You know, I'm ready to get out of the wilderness. 
And I, I know that many of you feel like you're right there with me. You know, you're ready to get out of the wilderness too. Life in the wilderness is hard. But it turns out life in the wilderness is not about me. It's not finally about my comfort. Because there are a lot of other people living in the wilderness. And unlike me, unlike some of you, they're trying to make their way through the wilderness without God. You know how hard life in the wilderness is with God? Imagine it without him. Just for a moment. Maybe some of you can remember back to what it was like. Trying to find your way through the maze of this life without God. Friends, we've been led into the wilderness because the wilderness is populated. It may be a wasteland, but it is populated with people who have not yet heard what God has done to deliver his children from slavery to sin and to death. People who have no knowledge personally of the power of God and the love of God in the gospel. Friends, how are they going to hear? How are they going to know what God did in Egypt, what God did in your life, what God did in my life, unless we go out into the wilderness and tell them? Unless we deliver this message that when heard and received, brings delight. Did you hear what Jethro said? He was delighted, delighted to hear this news. Where, where do we start? Well, maybe we start where Moses did. We start with family members. We start with, with our in-laws. We start with, with cousins. We, we start with neighbors. We start with the people that are right around us. And our job is not to convince them. Our job is not to talk them into something they don't want to do. Our job is not to answer every question they have. Our job is simply to declare plainly what God has done. That God has forgiven sinners in Jesus Christ. And he's forgiven me. And he's reconciled me. And as we tell people faithfully of what he has done, we trust that through the power of that gospel message, that message of hope, that message of deliverance, the Holy Spirit will be at work in people just like Jethro. I mean, what could be more unlikely a convert than a pagan priest? But God converted him, which means God can convert your dad, your brother, your mom, your cousin, That person that is close to you that you think is so far from the gospel, God can bring him or her to a knowledge of himself. But he means to do it through us. As out there in the wilderness, we talk about the deliverance that God has done. Why does God leave us here? Why does God lead us into the desert before taking us home? Friends, it's not because he can't. It's because he has a better plan. A better plan, a plan that will teach us more about himself, a plan that will train us to hate our sin as much as he does, to depend upon him for the victory, victory, a plan to use us so that others find God in the wilderness as well 
and so find hope of getting out of that wilderness. Friends, God will not leave us here forever. He will bring us home, not to heaven on earth, but a new heaven and a new earth. But first he means to bring us to himself. Before he brings us home, he brings us to himself because to be with him, even in the wilderness, is really all the heaven on earth we need. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do bring to you our, our, our hurts, our, our cries. And yet we bring to you also our faith. That, that you have not forgotten about us, that, that you have not made a mistake. But that you are, you are using this, this life in the wilderness of the world to teach us more about you really to fit us for heaven. Father, we pray that you would be at work in our hearts, that that we would understand who you are, that we can turn to you, that we can trust you, that you are indeed sufficient. Lord, turn our eyes to Christ and allow us to drink deeply of the water that he gives. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.